The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab, number 296 for November 8th. Happy birthday, Dad. 2010. the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Up, the show where you write the agenda. We answer your questions. We share your tips. We provide our own tips. We comment. From Durham, New Hampshire, I am Dave Hamilton. And then here in Fairfield, Connecticut, where it's a bit chilly, John F. Braun. Yeah, it's windy too, isn't it? I mean, we had wind like crazy yesterday. And it was sleety and uh, yeah. Winter is almost here. Actually, we're about a what, month and a half away, technically. And there's a time warp this weekend, too, as far as I can tell. It was so much fun. We're going to do it again next weekend. So <laughs> just remember that. Uh, we have a huge show here for you today. I don't know how much we'll get to, but uh, but I think we're going to start with Paul. Before we start with Paul, though, I do want to get to our first sponsor, which is Barebones Software. And of course, Barebones flagship product is... BB Edit. They're up to version 9.6. Uh, BB Edit is the text editor to beat all text editors. Now, some of you may think, why do I need a text editor? Well, if you're a programmer, you know that the text editor built into Xcode is nothing compared to what BB Edit can do for you. Uh, BB Edit's got all this cool stuff. It doesn't matter what language you're programming in. I think they've got it's something magic in there. They've got support for all languages. Well, maybe, maybe not all. Maybe that's a little bit of hyperbole, but they do have support for any language I've ever looked up. And what's cool is once you either tell it by the file extension or simply by telling it what language you're, you're programming in. And these languages can be HTML. They can be JavaScript. They can be objective C. It goes all, it goes all over the map. So you do not need to get into nitty gritty stuff to take advantage of what BB edit does. It, it supports tag folding, where if you've got a function sitting inside of a, uh, you know, the little function definition, you can twist that up using one of those little kind of Mac OS 10 triangles like you'd use in the finder. And you can just close up the entire function until you want to see it. And then you twist it open. You can jump around from function to function. It automatically finds what those are. It does the same thing with HTML. So if you're editing your own web page in HTML, maybe it can do it. It's also really, really handy. In fact, we're going to talk about something later in this show with regards to text. Uh, and it's really handy to have a program that will let you edit text in plain text format only with no formatting whatsoever. BB Edit doesn't even know how to do bold. Uh, of course, it can do bold for HTML, but it doesn't do any formatting of the text itself. And that can be really, really handy, too. Version 9, of course, adds one of my favorite features, which is instead of having a quit option, which of course it has, you can also have a suspend option where all the windows you have open, everything is preserved, but the program actually quits. Uh, I've even gone and mapped this, kind of alluding to something else we're going to talk about later in the show, to my command Q key so that when I hit command Q in BB Edit, it suspends instead of quits. It doesn't ask me to save anything. If I have unsaved documents, it doesn't matter. They are all saved in suspension. Really, really cool stuff. Of course, you can go check it out at barebones.com. And uh, it's 125 bucks for you and me, John. The 
educational version, if you're a student or affiliated with a school of any kind, uh, is 49 bucks. But go ahead and check it out at uh, at barebones.com. Of course, if you own a previous version, upgrades only 30 bucks. So barebones.com, BB edit. Check it out. And now, John, it's time to see what Paul asked. Paul says, I'm looking for an old calculator application that Apple abandoned a few OS versions ago. It was the paper tape calculator. I need that for long lists of numbers. Do you know of any way to bring that back? And if not, is there any other solution that you found? I tried to find a widget version, but even if I had that widget, it would only work if I had an online connection. Can you help? All right. Uh, So first and foremost, I'd like to say that widgets do work offline. Uh, Widgets are simply little JavaScript programs, dashboard widgets. Uh, Many of them connect to the Internet to get data to fill them in. But but if you have a widget that does not rely on data from the Internet, it will work offline. However, John, when I read his question, I thought that's odd for Apple to kind of take a feature away. And so I opened up the calculator app yesterday on my uh, MacBook Pro as I was prepping the show and I started looking in the menus and sure enough in the window menu is an option that says show paper tape turned it on and I think I got exactly what Paul was looking for so the the moral here for for anyone is don't be afraid and or don't forget uh, there's not a whole lot of fear in it but don't forget to take a look through the menus of any program that you use even something you use regularly because you might find something you didn't realize was there because I certainly or, didn't know this was there. Or, or I'm going to offer many more little tidbits here, Dave. All right. Because I know you love them. Well, I, I hope someone does. Anyways, you could also go to the help in the calculator. And, you know, if you went into the help in the calculator and typed uh-huh. paper tape, it would not only tell you about the paper tape feature, but it would also have a couple of selections that would show you the menu choice to enable the paper tape. Which is yeah. a nice thing in the current help. It, it is cool. Yeah, I don't know if people realize that. That's a good. That's a good point, John. The the help menu in Mac OS X has a search feature in it, and that feature searches uh, menu items. Um, it doesn't, based on what I've seen. I guess it does search the the help for the program as well, but it it searches mm-hmm. menu items. So if you're looking for a menu item and you can't find it because the menus are too deep. Uh, it, you can look for it here and it'll show you where it found it. And then if you highlight it, it actually mm-hmm. shows you, it opens the menu in tandem with the help menu. It's pretty darn cool. And one thing you notice about the behavior of the, the calculator as well, Dave, is that it, so I think what may happen, I don't think that's enabled by default, but once you enable that feature, along with a lot of other features, Dave, if you quit the calculator and then come back to it, it'll still be there. I verified that with the paper tape. Oh, good call. Um, yeah. But some of the other things that I like in the calculator if, if you're uh, geeky about calculators, is that in the view menu, there's a few different types of calculators. So, of course, there's a basic calculator. I use the scientific one, and there's a programmer calculator that includes, you know, conversion between number systems, which programmers have to do a lot of times. But then it has one of my favorites, Dave, RPN mode. Reverse Polish notation. That's correct. Yeah. And, and I was actually kind of surprised to see that there. Great. And very quickly, if, if, if anyone had a HP calculator when they were in school, which I did and, and you may have, Dave. I definitely did. You turned me on to the, my, my 20, what was it? A, uh, I can't remember if it was a 28S or a 43. Uh, I just just took it. In fact, I know he's listening to the show because he always listens. I just sent it off to John Martellaro uh, uh, at TMO because I know he's an HP calculator okay. geek. 
So there you go. And RPN is great for doing certain types of calculations. It just makes a lot of sense once you try it. And then also the other thing is it prevents uh, normal people from wanting to borrow your calculator because they can't figure it out. <laughs> and basically it involves putting stuff on a stack and then doing the operation. So, you know, you would do like eight, enter, two, divided by, and that would divide eight by two. Right. Um, again, it, once you use it and you start thinking that way, you can just blaze through calculations without getting confused. So lots of good stuff in the calculator that, uh, one, which again, I didn't know was there until I, until I found it. Yeah. So. Cool. All right. Off to Everett. Everett has a question for us that I know I will find. I don't know why I can't find it here. Here it is. And it is about the finder. Everett asks, is it possible to reset all finder preferences, including window and icon sizes? All right. Uh, yes, it is. Now, the, the, the thing I know about this is that even if you remove the finder preference files, those preferences, the window and icon sizes and positions will not go away because those are stored in files that are hidden. They're, they're named dot capital D capital S underscore store with a capital S. So D S underscore store files. Uh, and those are in each and every folder that you've touched with Mac OS 10. And, uh, and that's where it stores all that stuff. Now, you could go through, you'd have to use the terminal, I guess, and manually remove all those files. But, of course, uh, our favorite, my favorite, your favorite utility, Onyx, which is free, uh, in the maintenance rebuild section, has uh, an option called rebuild display of folders content, which does exactly that. It goes and removes all the .ds underscore store files. Uh, throughout the drive so that that would that would be the trick is go kill off the finder preferences and then um and then kill off the ds store files okay and the preference file as you may have guessed but if you hadn't is com.apple.finder.plist which is in your uh library home library preferences folder leave now, the other thing, too, Dave, is that those files drive a lot of people crazy because I'm with you, but I don't think you got an important part of the, the, the name of that file, Dave. And okay. It's dot DS. Yeah, I said the dot. Oh, I'm sorry. Is, okay. Which makes it hidden. Yeah. Now, well, it makes it hidden to some people. And, oh. and this is an aggravation that I think still exists. So I just while, while we're talking about this, uh, it creates it no matter if you're on a local volume or a network volume. And especially if you're in a shared environment, you know, Windows, for example, it's going to scatter these little DS store files all over, the, all over the place by default. Last I checked. And that, that's kind of annoying to see files that, you know, you have no need for uh, stored there. There is an Apple knowledge base article titled how to prevent dot DS underscore store file creation over network connection. So uh, that's yeah. one little tidbit there with those. And then also Dave, one program that I found and I actually paid for once they went out of beta is called total finder and total finder will also allow you to prevent the creation of those files, both locally and on a network volume. So just to toss that in the ring. Cool. Very cool. All right. Uh, let's move on. We, uh, we alluded, I alluded to a formatting question. I, and I love it when questions come in. And I think we had one last week. We probably have them all the time that remind me of a uh, remind us of things that we do without even thinking about it. Uh, that are huge time savers or efficiency boosters or uh, really just increasing the enjoyment of the Mac. And, and this 
question from Kieran definitely was was one of those. John and Dave, this is Kieran from Chicago. Uh, quick question for you. I work mostly in customer service and tech support, uh, so I don't do any page layout in office or iWork. Um, I really don't work with any kind of f- formatting, uh, styles, uh, no RTF. I pretty much work every day in plain text. Uh, however, when working between um, some of the main apps where formatting is present, like Mail, iChat, Safari, uh, Scrivener, and DevonThink, um, there is formatting and styles. And when I go and paste those, some text from those documents, either into them or out of them, um, you know, it copies the formatting. So sometimes I take that text and I put it into BB Edit's scratch pad and then just copy and paste it into where my destination is to sort of strip all that out. So basically my question is, is there a way to make command C and command V always copy as plain text and always paste as plain text. So if I ever need any kind of formatting, I'll just add it back manually because I hardly ever do it. Um, I'm not sure if there's a way to do this in Apple Script or maybe keyboard shortcuts, but um, I figure after you guys cut me off, you'll be able to answer it. Thanks, John and Dave. All right. Thanks, Kieran. Yeah. So this gets interesting. And really, it's up to each program how they support uh, text coming in. Uh, whether you can or, or coming out, I've never, I haven't spent a lot of time looking, but I, ha- I don't, I've never found a way of copying as plain text. There, there might be some programs that support this, but typically copying, when you copy a, a, a line of text, it takes the text, but it also grabs any formatting. So if you're in, you know, Microsoft word, it grabs the font, it grabs mm-hmm. the italics, it grabs bold, any of that stuff that's there all comes along with it. Uh, when you paste that back in, for example, if you go into a mail message and paste that in, then it automatically makes that message a rich text message and it puts your formatting in. Now in mail, you can go up and choose format the format menu and choose make plain text. And that will uh, strip that formatting out and convert you back to a, uh, just a plain text message with no formatting. However, if you wanted to do that from the outset, you could go to the edit menu and choose paste and match style. Now, this is different from simply paste, which is command V. It's paste and match style, which is option shift command V. And, and we're going to talk a little bit about the option symbol in a little bit, but I, I want to stay on track for for this here. Uh, you can. And, and that's that's how this that's how mail works. Uh, different programs deal with it differently uh, in five, and text edit. So I, th- I think it's an Apple standard, Dave, or at least in some programs, because the exact same option is in text edit, which I use often. Yeah, so. it, it is. That's right. Now, in FileMaker, and this is one that any FileMaker user I've taught this to has has uh, has loved me just a little bit more. So I want to teach it to all of you. In FileMaker, when you paste something into a field, uh, it comes with the formatting, just like we've discussed. However, you can choose if you hit command V to paste it and it comes with formatting and then you hit command Z, which is typically undo. And it is in this case, it only undoes the formatting the first time you hit command Z. If you hit command Z twice, it undoes the formatting the first time and then removes the text because that's what you did. You pasted. So it undoes the paste. So if you have this with FileMaker and you paste something in and it doesn't look right, command Z and, uh, and that'll clean that up for you. 
Well, that's kind of wacky. It is wacky. Yeah, I, I agree mm. that it's, you know, totally not uh, not at all intuitive. I don't even know how I found it, but it, uber helpful when, when you're dealing with it. But, you know, back to this paste and match style thing, uh, you can change the keyboard shortcut for this from its current, you know, hold down every uh, modifier and then V <laughs> uh, to just command V. And what you do is you go into, as you surmised, Kieran, you go into uh, keyboard sh- system preferences, keyboard, keyboard shortcuts tab, and you choose the application. It's got to be a running application or you can add one to the list. Uh, and then you type in, you got to hit the little plus sign uh, you, pl- you hit the plus sign, choose the application. And then the menu title is exactly what you are going to see in the menu. So if it's in the edit menu, it uh, doesn't matter what menu it's in, but go ahead and look and make sure you get the, the capitalization, right? So, you know, be paste and match style with capital P capital M capital S, right? Uh, and then for the keyboard shortcut do command V that will override the command V now that exists for, uh, you know, for the, for the normal paste operation in whatever that program is, you've got to experiment with this. I did this for a while and it got a little wacky, uh, because I, I didn't always want to paste and, and match style. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but you know, it, it's a handy thing to know about and it, and it, it can work out. So, so that, that's the trick is yes, figure out what programs you want to do this in and then go ahead and edit that that keyboard shortcut to override the command V that would normally be there for paste. Wow. And yeah. then word, if you're a word user, this is what I found in word. And, and to me it was second nature, but just to mention it, if people haven't found it, you go to paste special and it'll give you a little list of all of the options that it think are, thinks are valid. And in my experience, there's always one called unformatted text. So mm-hmm. every, so I think, uh, yeah, it's safe to say that every program does it a little uh, annoyingly, a little differently yep yep interesting 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 all right uh let's uh let's try christoph here because this is uh do we, do we have anything else on that john are we are we good on, uh, on i i think we're planning maybe a rant for their uh a mini rant for their use of uh symbols in the menus to try to indicate which key you should press and uh I don't know the, the the one that I saw because you brought it up and it is part of this uh, option shift command V yep. is the option key when it shows it, it to you in the menu. I, I think I'm with you. We, we were trying to discuss what it is to me. It kind of looks like somebody at the top of a slide ready to slide down it. <laughs> and he but has the think, option of whether or not to slide. He's not already on the slide. Right. Right. <laughs> that's what it, that's what it is. I think that's right. I think that's right. Oh, we, we've discussed it on the show before. And, and I think, I guess it was a listener. I thought it was you, John, but it must've been a, a listener that uh, informed us that that is of course the electrical symbol for a switch. And it is a switch in the down position as opposed to the up position for the option. And that, 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 uh, you know, you, the switch could go either way. And so it's an option as to what's going to happen. And that's, uh, that's where that symbol came from. I guess I'll go with that. That The only finger wag that I'll have at Apple is that that symbol is not on any keyboard that I have. So unless you go to, for example, I, I found it by going to the uh, keyboard shortcuts help. Uh, if, you, if you search for that, you'll get a web page that describes what each of those mean. And I think it, it's probably in the uh, the Mac help as well. But without having, I mean, you know, the, the other keys, Dave, the Apple key and the, you know, the Clover and Alt and Option, they're, they're all marked on the keyboards I have in front of me. So Yeah, yeah. 
All right. Uh, I think what will be a quick one about, about the iPhone. Uh, Christoph writes, I'm a rather new iPhone user, and I've got an iPhone 3GS now with iOS 4.1, except the alarm clock bug. I am curious how... Uh, yeah. Okay. So, so there is, there was a daylight saving time, uh, alarm clock bug or a bug that was introduced after you switched to daylight saving time. If you had, and there's an article on TMO about this, if you had a recurring alarm set, uh, it, well, you, you already know that it's broken because by the time this show comes out, I think everyone will have switched to DST. I think some countries switched last week. Of course we switched this past weekend here in the U S but, uh, but anyway, that's not his question. Uh, I'm curious how to, and the solution to the daylight saving bug is to just delete and recreate your recurring alarms and then you're good to go. Uh, Christoph writes, I'm curious how to completely turn off any data activity on my device, push, internet connections, etc. Let's imagine that I don't have any international data plans tied to my contract. And when I'm traveling abroad, I don't want to pay any extra for my data use. And roaming price per 100 kilobyte might be relatively high. So my question is how to turn off those features and only use 3G voice services on the iPhone 3GS and iOS 4.1. Okay, so if on the iPhone you go into settings and go into general and go into network, you're going to see two features in here, chances are, uh, that will help you. One is cellular data with an on and off switch and the other is data roaming with an on off switch. I think... You can have the best of both worlds by making sure that data roaming is off, Christoph, because that will make it so your phone only uses cellular data when you're on your home network as opposed to your, um, you know, roaming on a network. But if you have a limited data plan here in the U.S., which, of course, is the way it kind of works now with AT&T, you may simply want to turn cellular data off entirely. And that's what the uh, other option is for you. You switch that cellular data switch to off. Well, then it's not going to use cellular data. It will use Wi-Fi. It'll still use 3G for calling and all of that stuff. But uh, but your data will will not go over the cell network. Uh, I think I think that's the uh, the answer. The one thing I would be I would caution here is if you go and make these changes and then switch it into airplane mode and then out of airplane mode, check them again. It's possible. I've seen some things get reset coming out of airplane mode with my with my iPhone. And I would hate to uh, have you set everything up and then, you know, find out four or five days later that, oh, my God, it turned it back on after I got off the plane. So uh, so that's my that's my thought on that. I don't know if you have anything to add there, John. No, no, <laughs> I, I, I currently do not have a uh, phone with a data plan. So it's. Uh... That's fascinating to me. Well, you know, I did. Verizon did offer tethering and then one day uh, through plan minutes and then one day I went, you know, I tried to enable it and they brought up a web page saying, hey, guess what? We want 50 bucks a month to enable this feature. You um, told them the pound sand, huh? Well, which is ridiculous seeing as my data, you know, my voice plan is, is you know, uh, about 30 bucks a month. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, yeah, I, uh, the, I, I do my data by other means until they come out with the Verizon iPhone, which we know is any day now. Oh, tomorrow. It's supposed to be tomorrow, John. Uh, oh, any okay. Day. Real Great timing. soon now. That's right. Uh, all right. Our second sponsor for this show is Circus Ponies with Notebook. Notebook is an application that you can use to organize your data, thoughts, PDFs, sticky notes, pictures, movies, audio files about any given subject or multiple subjects into separate notebooks. So you've got data 
that's all about, say, the Thanksgiving dinner that you're you're planning, but some of its pictures, some of its text, some of its PDFs, and you want to organize it all into one place. Well, Notebook is the way to do that. You can type your outline inside Notebook. It looks just like a regular white line notebook, but of course it does all this other stuff. You can type things in. It forms a little hierarchical outline as you're typing. And then, of course, you can search through the entire notebook based on what you remember about what you put in. Maybe a keyword along with the uh, along with the PDF or maybe the content of the PDF or the date you put it in. All of this is available inside Circus Ponies Notebook. It's available at CircusPonies.com. Now, Pete, I know you you and your family or several members. I do. Yeah, well, family. my son and I both use it. Um, yeah. extend, try to, I'll get my wife in there someday to use it, but... Uh, no, it, no, it's a great little program and it does, uh, it, it's essentially a virtual notebook. That's just the best way to put it, but it's, it's so much more powerful than that because it, um, it has a lot of templates, be it professional, like legal templates and those sorts of things. So you're not starting um, with a blank slate if right, you don't want to. Exactly. Or you can write a research paper or get organized for high school or college. Uh, or if you just want to take notes, it's got a great little to-do list. Um, uh. when you open it, it offers to, uh, give you uh, a tutorial. Okay. Um, and uh, a commercial within a commercial uh, screencast online also has some, some how to use notebooks. So oh, a little plug right. for Don over there. Yeah. But, um, and the other thing is, uh, that's kind of unknown about there, uh, about it is, uh, it has a nice little uh, graphics editor in there. I came up with a logo for a friend of mine's webpage who was a real estate agent. And so I took all the item and items from her company's you know, the green for better homes and the, and put it all in there with nice shadowed text and put an oval in and then, uh, uh, you know, slanted the oval to the side and, and put her name in and the registered trademark and all that. So it came out really nice. I thought it's a nice little graphics editor. Um, it, it's just a powerful piece of gear. There's just not much you can't do with it, uh, including, uh, publishing your notebook as a website if you choose. Um, really? So it's, yeah, it's an oh, HTML yeah. editor. That, I've seen that. That's yeah. right. Yeah. It's an, it, it, there's not much it won't do. It'll keep track of everything. Um, it's powerful graphics, uh, HTML. Um, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. <laughs> what else? I mean, there's so much. You just can't begin to go through it all here. Uh, but it, it's a wonderful little organizational program. Awesome. Uh, it is available at circusponies.com. Uh, you can, of course, download a free trial, and then a standard license is 50 bucks. Actually, they'll save you a nickel, $49.95. If you're a student, there's an academic license, and that's $29.95. And you can even get a family pack, three-user license key, for $99.95. Again, all of this at CircusPonies.com. Download the free trial first, and then uh, and then you'll get hooked. All right. Uh a question that sort of riffs on some things that we've talked about, I don't know, over the last six months from Mark here, John. Hey, guys, I thought you might enjoy the uh, geek factor on this one. Ah. I was wondering if there is a way for OS ten to automatically mount a network attached volume uh, upon detecting a particular wireless network. So say I come into my home with my MacBook, I open it up, it detects my wireless network and joins it. Once it's done that, it automatically mounts uh, a network shared folder. That's uh, my question, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> don't, don't stick too much. Uh, so Good news, Dave. The answer is yes. Yes. On, on to the next question. That's right. <laughs> oh, he wants to know how. He wants to know how. Well, okay, so here's something, John. You know, uh, I mentioned there was some medical stuff going on. My wife had 
uh, actually pretty major abdominal surgery last Wednesday. She's doing great. Uh, she's home recovering. It'll be a you know long recovery because that's how it goes with that sort of thing. But she's doing really well. I've got to be Mr. Mom in the uh, in the interim. So that's uh, I think I've got to decide between 220 or 221. Right. Is that right? On, on the Mr. Mom thing. No, nothing. All right. Uh, yeah. Anyway, um, fans of the movie will will no doubt have enjoyed that. Anyway, uh, we were down. They had Wi-Fi at the at the hospital course and I brought my laptop down, uh, mostly used the iPad, but it certainly did use the, the laptop. And I even stayed in a hotel one night and used the, the Wi-Fi on my laptop there. Um, and when I got back here. My network shared volume simply mounted. There was nothing special to do. It did not mount. It didn't complain when I was at uh, these various other Wi-Fi networks. But as soon as I got back, it was there. I launched iTunes. I have my iTunes library out on it. And uh, and it just worked just fine. I didn't have to do anything. Now, the way I've set it up is the trick that we've discussed in the past where I I went and navigated, I went to share in the finder, I went to shared, I clicked on the computer that shares the drive or the device itself, if it's like a time capsule or whatever, get it. And I get it so that I am looking at the drive or the folder that I want to mount as a, as a volume. And then I take it and go up in the, uh, in the menu bar, uh, sorry, in the, uh, the title bar of the window. And you'll see, the device icon and the next to it, the name of the device, grab the icon and you'll see as soon as you grab it, it kind of and move away. Uh, you get the little plus sign, the green plus sign floating along with you. Drag that over to the devices section in the finder and drop it there. You can move things around. You can put it at the top or the bottom or whatever, but drag it over there. And that's been the trick for me to get it to do this auto mount. Of course, when it asks me for my username and password, I check the little box that says, Remember this in the keychain that makes it so it doesn't have to ask me again. But uh, but that has worked very, very well for me. Now, there's there's other options more specific to Mark's question here uh, where we can we can trigger things from uh, from joining a wireless network. And John, I'll, I'll, I'll pass it to you to talk about that stuff. You know, I, I was trying to do with automator but couldn't quite get there you can certainly mount a server i I couldn't find an action to actually detect a wireless network i'll have to poke around for that but there are a number of programs dave that will based on the environment that they detect yep will do pretty much anything you want and i think the 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 most notable and the one that uh, you and i are most familiar with is marco polo Yep. But there are a couple of others. There, there's the new kid on the block um, called Airport Location, which I, I don't think it accurately describes at all what the program does. Because uh, And actually looking at the feature list when you compare it to Marco Polo, it does a whole bunch of things. But two of the things that it can do, one, it can detect, oh, look, there's this wireless network. And number two, it can connect to a server. Right. So I would say with that pro, and then they mentioned a third program which I really haven't looked at called Network Location. Based on the feature list, it looks like that may be the the oldest option, but I haven't really tried it. But either Airport Location or Marco Polo, uh, you can as long as you can define the conditions specifically enough, which in this case I think is pretty easy. <laughs> um, there you go. That's your uh, that's your solution. Awesome. All right. Uh- there's there's a question from Tom and then and then another a different Mark had a similar question. I'll read Tom's question. Uh, Tom's got a kind of a different slant on it, but it, it riffs off of actually something I just talked about. Uh, he 
Tom says, I have a new Apple TV and a time capsule. I want to put my video and podcast library on the external hard drive. I have heard you mention NAS drive features before network attached storage. I've just lowered my bandwidth coming in to a six megabit AT&T broadband account. Not that this matters. It came with a wired or wireless modem. I want to know the best way to set it up. I'm afraid that I will put the information on the external time capsule and it will need to send it to the MacBook Pro over the network, which will send it back to the time capsule because that's managing the network and then send it to the Apple TV. And now I've sent the data, the same data three times and I'm degrading my network performance in the process. To add to the situation, I do have two wireless networks, the AT&T router and the time capsule. I have several other devices on the network and also a second computer and an iPhone. Okay. So let's talk about a couple of things. I'm going to refer you back to, I think it was show 292 where we talked about setting up devices in bridge mode. You want to set up one of your uh, routers as in router mode as the main manager of your network. That's going to be whatever is connected to your uh, AT&T connection. So likely the AT&T router, which means setting up the time capsule in bridge mode. You can go back to, I think it's 292. It might've been 293. Uh, no, it was definitely 292. Uh, and, and, and listen for that, but essentially just put it in bridge mode and, and uh, connect it via ethernet to the, the other one. And you're good to go. Uh, but yes, you will be sending data back and forth a couple times because the Apple TV is going to get the data from your MacBook pro, not from the time capsule directly. So if the MacBook pro is getting the data from the time capsule, then the MacBook pro has got to get it. And then it's got to send it back out on the network. Uh, of course, if you're doing all of this over ethernet, there's really no concern over bandwidth. Even if you're doing it over wireless, chances are you're not going to have a huge bandwidth problem because what you're sending isn't going to saturate the available bandwidth in the network. Uh, it's possible it would, though, depending on distances and, and, uh, and any other factors that might limit the overall performance of the network. But in general, I don't think you have anything to worry about here. John, do you, do you have anything to add to that? Well, if you'd like to know if you're saturating the network, then there are a couple of things you could run. So my favorite, because it's free. Well, actually, it's not my favorite, but it's free. Activity monitor. There's a network tab, and that will show you the up and downstream uh, data that's being consumed, uh, both as a number and as a nice little historical graph. So take a look at that and see if you're, uh, if you're saturating your network. Uh, some others, of course, menu meters, or iStat menus will also show bandwidth yep. and who's consuming it. So um, it, it may not be a problem, though. I agree that the data is being shuffled about. You know, there's going to be upload and download. Y you want to quantify this first to see if it actually is a problem. So any of those tools will, uh, will help you uh, quantify that. Right, right. Uh, so Mark's question was, was related to this, and it was... Uh, you know, can am I going to run into any problems putting my iTunes library on a NAS drive? And and the question is no, uh, un, except that when you're not connected to the NAS drive or or the network that contains the NAS drive, you have no access to your iTunes library. That that that's really the the only issue in a nutshell. I do this; it works fine. the The frustrating part is you can't choose where to put 
different segments of your iTunes library. The, the entire library needs to essentially be in one place unless you're doing manual management of the library, which which you can do. But it gets very, very complicated. And, and you've got to you know, you, you've got to you've got to take the the onus of of maintaining that management structure. It's much better to have iTunes do it. But it would be great to have movies in one place and songs in another and podcasts in another, especially because the podcasts are updating regularly. You know, that might be the kind of thing you want with you on the road. Um, so, you know, and the, and the problem is when I travel, if I open iTunes on my Mac and it starts downloading podcasts, it goes and puts them on my local hard drive because that's the only place it has in the normal place, home, uh, music, iTunes library. And then as soon as I'm back, it realizes, oh, the NAS drive is there and it starts putting stuff there. But it, it leaves all the stuff in my my home uh, folder that, that it put there previously. So, so that can be a little bit convoluted. You've got to do the whole consolidate library thing and then manually delete those files. So little, little bit to, to worry about, but, but it, it, in, in general, it works totally fine. So that's, that's my story and I'm sticking to that. Do you have anything to, uh, to add here, John, before we, before nope. we move on to super Baca. And I'm not sure what that <laughs> name is, but uh, Super Baca wrote in the Mac Geek Gab Crew forums, I have two Macs, one at home and one at the office. What is the best way to connect them so I can access the entire file system of each Mac? I don't want a Dropbox or FTP solution where I have to place the files in an intermediate holding area. I do want some kind of way to map the remote computer to the finder for an unfiltered live connection. My guess is some kind of SSH, but many of those don't just map it to the finder or let you transfer files. I don't just want a remote desktop. Okay. Well, super Baca, we have some advice for you. I think that's the only way to say that name. It might need some reverb. We'll, we'll see. We'll see how we go, John. Uh, I think this is a really bad idea. And, and, and we're going to tell you how to do it, but I'm going to tell you why I think it's a bad idea first. Uh, my, uh, maybe we'll go back and forth because there's lots of reasons on why it's a bad idea. But number one is bandwidth. Uh, you're going to be limited by the upstream bandwidth of the computer containing the files that you wish to access. So if you have, mm -hmm. you know, if you've got some, you know, let's say you've got a 15 megabit down and two megabit uh, per second up connection. It's that two megabit per second up that you're going to be limited on uh, and two megabits ain't that fast. It, you know, it's okay if you're going to slurp down a word document or something, but man, it, you know, it just gets slow and it's so inefficient because every time you save, you're now saving back across that connection and it's this back and forth and files really aren't built, you know, fi file systems aren't built to be shared over the internet. So there's a, a massive inefficiency that's going to happen there. Uh, I really don't, you know, with band, so bandwidth is my, my number one, uh, uh, concern with this Go, john we'll, we'll we'll bounce back and forth on a couple of these and then we'll tell you how to do it so you well, go bandwidth may not be an issue in which case you may want to do this but here's what i'm going to recommend yeah we'll, we'll bounce it back and forth i think you came up with it but there's certainly a way you can do this dave from a, a technical point of view yes so of course mac os 10 has file sharing right so you could certainly go into the sharing section here. So that would be system preferences. Yep. Sharing. File sharing. Yep. And then you get, you can specify which folders or which areas. Yep. So number one, the thing that makes me nervous about this in general 
Uh, I don't do this, Dave. I don't share my computer on the internet at large because I don't want to share my entire machine. But but even then, so I'll, I'll continue. So number one, I would certainly identify a subset of what's on the computer right. because it, uh, I just get nervous having anything available on the internet. But well, you could certainly do this. Here's, here's an important thing, though. If you turn on file sharing, even if you don't add any thing to that list and the only things listed are your uh you know public folders or whatever right if you log in let's say you you log if i log into my computer as me i see in addition to whatever shares are listed there for me i also see my home folder and if i'm if i'm an administrator of the computer so if i you know am the default account on the machine uh if i'm the only account on the machine or if i have a administrator privileged account i see my my home folder whichever user will see plus every single hard drive attached to that computer regardless of what is listed in the file sharing uh, uh preference pane there so every drive is shared when you turn on file sharing if you're an administrator it's important to remember mm-hmm. so there there is to my knowledge there is no certainly not with the gui uh with the user interface, there is no way to turn off file to limit file sharing to only being certain folders. Gotcha. So there you go. So to continue then in, in the sharing, you know, you have an option of which protocols you want to use to share and all that. And then all this can, you know, get a big technical, you, you then need to, so, so that's one thing. So turn on the sharing on the computer in question, right? But then you're going to have to enable access through your router and or your firewall, you're going to have to configure things because normally no device should allow that to to come through. Right. By by default, people on the Internet cannot access your computer to even request access to the files. Right. That. And, and so we need to deal with the first part of that. You've, you've dealt with the second by turning on file sharing, but we have to be able to get to the computer from the Internet. And and to do that, John. To do that, what you would have to do is first find out the IP address of, uh, now if you have one that stays stable, that's really nice. So, so you would have to find out the IP address of whatever back, device back, hang you up. have. Back up. You got you to gotta open the hole in the router first, John. Right. Right. Okay. You got you to right. open the hole. Forward, op- right? In which case, I think you still need the IP address of the device. Of the router. Yes. Yes. So you need to configure your router, however it is that you do them. But routers, IP addresses don't change. Right. I mean, they they're typically whatever, whatever the, the router address is that you set internal to your network. Now, if it's an Apple, I'm sorry, I'm talking. Uh, I was I was talking specifically the uh, I'm sorry. So you're correct. There, there are two IP addresses on your router. There's the outside address that the Internet at large knows about. Right. And then there's hopefully if you configure it like most people, you will have an internal address for each device that's probably done through dhcp and nat right so with those two pieces of information dave thank you now you 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 <laughs> there are two parts to this what you then are going to have to do and it, it, it's specific you know to the device you're doing is you want to create a tunnel or a hole i, I kind of like saying hole because it, it is a hole it's it's a way for people to get from the outside to the inside and you're going to map a specific ip address and port so in this case it would be your outside ip address and port for whatever sharing service you're using. Like, for example, if we're doing, you know, AFP, um, I believe that's 548, Dave? Yes, that's right. 
And you would map that to whatever the internal IP address is of the device that is doing the file sharing. Right. So, so I'm going to try and crystallize what you've said here, John. So mm-hmm. the idea is you're on the outside of the, uh, you're, you're at your office and you want to access your computer at home. Now, if you go into system preferences network on your computer at home and that IP address is, for example, 192.168.1.101, what you need to do, that IP address doesn't exist in the real world that only exists at your house. So what you need to do is make it so that when you try to connect to your router, you and, and you connect to port 548 on the router because that's what Apple file sharing uses that it automatically points to that dot one one computer inside. And so you have to go into your router and create uh, a, a port forward is, is typically what that's called. I think that's what Apple calls it. Linksys calls it that too. And like John said, you, you map the external port of 548 to the internal port of 548. And you have to map the internal port of 548 to the computer inside your, your network, which as we just talked about is the one that ends in dot one Oh one. That should do it. It does get a little confusing. I highly recommend using portforward.com. You put in what you're trying to forward, what router you have, and it will show you the steps that you need to take, including screenshots of how to do this. Makes life so much easier. So that that would be the that would be that would be the trick. And then you then you have to just connect to the external IP address. You may or may not know that. Uh, from your home, uh, in this example, you could visit whatismyip.com, and that's going to give you, you can visit that from mm-hmm. any computer in your home, and that's going to give you your external IP address, right? But, uh, but it, it get, you know, it, it gets convoluted, and again, it's, it's not, I don't think it's the best option. You, you know, I, I'm in reading this post from Super Baca, um, I'm, I, I, I wonder if, Wonder why it is that a Dropbox would be, or or not a Dropbox, but the Dropbox.com service would be a bad idea. Uh, it, you do not have to put your files in an intermediate holding area. Uh, that is done automatically for you, and this, as is the synchronization. So you store the documents on your home computer, uh, and then you have a matching folder on your work computer, and any changes you make to any one of those files in either place are essentially immediately replicated across the internet to both computers. So there is no, yes, there is an intermediate holding area, but it's not like you have to check files in and out of this manually. It, it happens seamlessly. And I really believe it would be the answer to, to what you're trying to do here. It, it has the added benefit of if you're on an airplane and you have your laptop with you and your laptop is also subscribed to that Dropbox as long as you synced mm-hmm. before you got on the plane, you're, you've got access. You're good to go. You've got all your files. And then as soon as you get off the plane and get on a Wi-Fi network, assuming you didn't have it on the airplane, uh, you're good to go. It's just going to automatically do the syncing. You don't even have to think about mm-hmm. it. So I, I'm not convinced that Dropbox is a bad solution unless there's a security concern. No, I think Dropbox is good. Or if you uh, have MobileMe, then yeah. iDisk is certainly a solution since it will, you know, it's a web dev network volume. Um, but the other concern is that when you when you look at the sharing in Mac OS X, Dave, you have three options. So you have AFP, right. which is Apple's flavor. You have FTP, which uh, as uh, 
as our super friend indicated, he wouldn't want it. I, I, I mean, FTP is, is so out. I mean, they even say in the screen here, warning, FTP logins and data transfers are not encrypted. And then the other option is SMB, which is kind of the Windows flavored networking. If you're going to have to choose any of those, just don't choose FTP. Right. AFP and SMB, uh, from what I recall, offer some level of uh, encryption so that the, uh, the traffic is not vi- viewable to others. Yeah. 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 Something. Yeah. So I hope we, uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, so number one, sharing number two, set up your router to allow that access. And that's uh, it. And portforward.com is going to make what we talked about here so much simpler for you. Uh, take what we talked about, use that as kind of general knowledge, but don't worry about the specifics. Portforward.com will help you. Trust me on mm-hmm. this. All I right. Trust you. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, I do want to talk about our third sponsor, so I hope you'll trust me about that, John. Uh, it, it is Citrix with GoToAssist Express. Now, GoToAssist Express is a solution for yet another remote access. Everything's tying together today. It's like all flowing together. One question into another, one question into a sponsor. Uh, if you want to have remote control of a computer, GoToAssist Express is the answer for you. Let's say, for example, you work with clients, colleagues, maybe even family members to resolve uh, computer issues. You're the guy, right? Or the or the woman. When the phone rings, you know, when somebody has a problem, you're the first one they call. And if you are, you know how frustrating it can be to try and work with someone over the phone that doesn't really understand computers. In fact, it can be so frustrating. Sometimes you might just get in the car and drive over there. But that's a productivity killer, right? You know, having to spend time in the car just to go fix some 10-minute little problem. If you can control that computer and control that computer without having to walk the person on the other end of the phone through a series of hoops just to let you in, that would be huge. Well, that's what GoToAssist Express is for. You create the session, you log in, you know what you're doing, you log in, you create the session. In fact, it's very simple. Anyone could do this. And it it provides you with a link. You can email that link to someone. You can read it to them over the phone. All they have to do is go to their web browser and visit this link, however you can get it to them. Once they do, the go to Assist Express takes over from there. It asks them, is it cool if this other person accesses your computer? They say yes. They agree one more time and then boom, up it comes on the screen. On your screen, they see what you're doing, but you're controlling their computer from remote. You didn't have to walk them through port forwarding. You didn't have to walk them through any of this other stuff. It just happens. And it's all because it's managed by GoToAssist servers. So there is no need to poke holes in routers or worry about any of that other stuff. Go to assistexpress.com slash geek is the place to go to get a 30-day free trial of Go to Assist Express. Again, that's go to assist.com slash geek. I think I said go to assistexpress.com slash geek. That's not the right URL, but it might work. The right one is go to assist.com slash geek. 30-day free trial. Go ahead and check it out. Play with it with a family member, with a friend. Uh, if you do if you do any level of this kind of stuff, you're gonna be hooked real fast. So Again, go to assist.com slash geek. John, several shows ago, we've had these these follow-ups lingering a little bit. Uh, we talked about AppleScript and Automator, and we've gotten some great responses from uh, from three of you. And 
We've well, we've gotten great responses from a lot more than three of you, but we've boiled down to, to three of these that I really wanted to share. Uh, and we just wanted to make sure it got out there so that anyone interested in, in Apple script and automator, so, uh, could, uh, can take advantage of this stuff. So first we'll, we'll, uh, we'll go with, we'll go with Jim, which is sort of a comment and a question and, and then we'll move on from there. Hi guys, this is Jim in Buffalo, New York, a drinking town with a football problem. <laughs> in the last episode, Larry wrote in asking how he could tell iTunes to always update his podcast, whether it thinks he's listened to them or not. And I was wondering if it would be possible to incorporate that script from DougScripts.com into an automator action that he could just put alongside of iTunes in the dock uh, to just click whenever he wants to make sure that all of his podcasts are updated. This uh, is where you can cut me off. All right. We will cut you off. Thanks, Jim. Uh, yeah, he doesn't even have to go that far, though. If you have an Apple script that does something that you want, you don't have to make an automator action out of it to make it launchable. Every Apple script can be saved as an application. And then that application is run just like anything else. So you could certainly take that script from Doug's Apple scripts, the update podcast automatically save it as an application and then just run it from the finder. Um, and, it, and it'll work totally fine. That's, that's, that's how Apple script works. It, kind of built to package these these standalone things. Do you do a lot with AppleScript, John, or uh, not these days? More Automator, and Automator does the same thing. When you start up Automator, right. one of the options, it, it, it's right in your face there, it says application. Would you like to take what you're making and create an application out of it, which, as you point out, Dave, is launchable like any other. So so I think that's a yeah one similarity between the two tools. Yeah, it, it's good to point out, and, and Sal Segoyan may, may hate me for describing it this way, or he may love this. Uh, but to me, automator is kind of a GUI on top of Apple script, right? And, and I realize that Apple script is a series of tools on top of other things, but Apple script is more than nitty gritty and, and gives you a lot more flexibility, but you have to be willing to code to get it done. Whereas automator leverages all the power of Apple script, but you're programming it with a graphical interface and you're just linking steps together visually, uh, it is more simplified than Apple script, but, hmm. uh, but that, you know, that that's all automator is, is you're building an Apple script with, with tools. So you're limited into the options that you can use, but, but it's certainly very, very powerful. And, and again, I use it. In fact, I'll use it as soon as we're done with the show here, because I have a whole automator action that, that or an automator workflow that goes through a series of actions to take the AIFF file that we record and get it to whatever format you folks are listening, MP3 or AAC. It, it, it does both. So. Cool. Cool. All right. Uh, Scott, with, uh, with yet another follow-up. Hello, John and Dave. This is Scott in D.C. Take two. <laughs> um, you were talking to somebody, and I'm sorry, I forgot his name, about learning AppleScript. And one of the things that he did say was he's not a programmer which means that he may not be up on some of the technical jargon. The, a lot of the development stuff online and going through the Apple script editor itself may be a little beyond a basic programmer. It just assumes you understand a certain amount of architecture and programming. Let me make a recommendation. The missing manual series that David Poe puts together, one of the books is on Apple script. I have a two-year-old copy of it, and even though I have programmed professionally, 
I find it a very good reference and very nice to have something on the desk nearby to be a reference. And it reads a little bit below my comprehension level, which is fine, which means that it's written more for a general audience than somebody who has programmed assembly language in his past. So I do recommend this book for uh, basic people to go through. It walks you through certain things, and it's good to have around. That's my recommendation. So, ta-ta, you know where to find me. Don't get caught. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. All right, and uh, and one last one from Kevin here. Hi, John. Hi, Dave. It's uh, Coder Kev from Twitter. Um, I heard you guys talking on uh, the last uh, podcast, I think it was 291, about AppleScript and thought I'd throw out uh, the uh, MacScriptor website, Mac, MacScriptor.net. Um, we've still got a thriving community of uh, AppleScripters over there, so uh, rather than trying to find your way blindly, uh, it's much easier to holler for help when you need it. Um, that's one. Two, um, the record button in uh, the AppleScript editor is pretty much a joke anymore. Um, it hasn't worked properly for, oh, years. Um, e even Apple's own programs oftentimes don't don't uh, record. Um, so that's mm. that's not really much an option in terms of trying to trying to get a script built. Uh, you're much better to, to, to try and build it from scratch. Okay? This is where you cut me off. And you're cut off. Thanks, Kevin. That's uh, that's fantastic. And it's and sorry to hear that record feature. I have not used it in yeah, probably half a decade at least. Uh, it, it was cool, sort of. Time to move on to George. SSD follow-up, John. Where's George? There's George. There's George. Uh, yeah, we can't get to all of them. So, yeah, we probably can't. Well, let's see what happens. Uh, George says the idea of using the express. Talking about our conversation about express cards, he says the idea or SSDs rather. The idea of using the express card slot with SSD for my MacBook Pro has appeal. But from what I understand, the greatest benefit is to have the OS and programs on the SSD. I found a 64 gigabyte express card SSD on Amazon. Would the express card slot throughput limit performance? I vaguely recall researching limits on the eSATA card I gave my son-in-law and reading something about the Mac express card slot feeding through the USB bus. Uh, no, uh, that's not my experience at all. And I don't think it was yours either. You and I have both uh, experimented with SSD card uh, options in our express card slots. And I, I think they go full SATA speed that that was my experience well the thing is anything you, you put in the express card slot could appear as either a SATA or as USB and, and the devices we have as far as I know now I think what he's thinking about is that there was a bug I think in some of the Macs or, or an intentional choice right where it was not achieving the maximum eSATA speed which I think was three gigabits but that was only on the internal bus not right, right. The, there's not a, on the express yes. card bus right Right. right. There was a limitation somewhere in the Mac where it wasn't allowing the maximum uh, throughput. Not that it was an issue, I think, because the other stuff connected to that bus could never reach that speed anyway. So I don't think it was a big deal. So I, right. I think that's what he's talking about. Yeah. 
Yeah. So no, no, he's good. Okay. So his next question was, uh, how would I boot from a drive in the express card slot? And I didn't have any trouble doing this. Uh, I just chose it as startup disc and up it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. If you hold down the option key, right? Or, or hold down the option key at, at boot time. That's the other way to do it. That's right. Right. The startup manager. Yeah. The only thing that different happens is when you put in an express card, as you'll see a, an additional icon in your menu bar indicating that, That's oh, there's right. something plugged into that slot. That's right. Um, but yeah, as you pointed out, Dave, it's, it's just like any other, you know, SATA or USB device. Uh, it, it looks like a disc. Yep. Yep. Unless you have the first generation MacBook Pro, the Core Duo, not the Core 2 Duo MacBook Pro. Uh, and then... The, it could not boot from the express card slot as I, as I learned, which was interesting. Uh, it, it, and he has a, a, another good, this is all, these are all good questions. Uh, how would I move the OS from the internal hard drive to the express card slot? Should I use migration assistant? And I would stay far away from migration assistant for this process because you're not moving everything to it. I, I would do a clean install of the OS onto the express card and then I would boot from it. Then go into and during the install, it's going to ask you to create an account, create an account with the same long and short usernames that you use for your existing account on the internal drive. Then once you've rebooted and you've installed and rebooted from the uh, SSD in the express card, go into system preferences accounts. And what you want to do is tell it, look at my home folder that's on another drive. And the way to do this is in accounts, you right-click or control-click on the user account and choose advanced options in there. And there's you got to be careful in here because you can really screw things up. But in there, there's an option to change the home directory. Point that to your internal, you know, you know your, your, your spindle drive. And I think it's going to ask you to log out and log back in or reboot. But once you do that, then you're good to go. And it will boot from one drive and read your home directory from another uh, and it, it works totally, totally fine. Can I jump in? There? You have a jump? You know, you know, well, as I mentioned before the show, uh, I, I went to Amazon and I got a, uh, a refurbished Crucial Drive. Yep. 256 gig SSD for $340 shipped. And uh, so the prices are coming down. I mean, you can continue wow. to try these here, but, uh, you know, maybe save up for Christmas or, you know, take some of that Christmas money, whatever. But... But the prices are finally starting to come down now. They're still high on the on the brand new, but I think a refurbished drive sealed from Crucial. Wow. I'm, I'm living out there on the bleeding edge, I guess, but I'm willing to take that chance and, and see how it goes. But 256 uh, is big. Oh, yeah, it is big. Yeah. So I'm thinking, yeah. you know, for a 128 or a 64, you could still go internal. Yeah. Um, you know, and that would go. And then there's that other option that I've heard talked about lately is changing your uh, optical drive. Right. We, and we that, did. We you guys talked about talked that. Talked about that. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Uh, okay. So one last question. And this, I think, John, you have the answer. George asked, well, it would, I think, hang out of the slot for adding fast hard drive equivalents with a compact flash card work. Can they be as fast as SSD? Based on what I found, Dave, the answer is no. Definitely not. <clears throat> no, we're talking a whole different class of device. And there's a, there's a couple of ways that people measure speed on either um, CF or compact flash or uh SD or secure digital cards. The, the most common that I've seen is that they'll give a class rating, which gives a lot of wiggle room, but it kind of helps you determine what ballpark the, the device is in as far as speed. Yeah. So for example, one thing I ran into is that you need at least a class six card in order to record HD video, which my camera does. Um, 
I've had a class four card and basically the kid, the camera will say, or the, you know, uh, camcorder, whatever, it'll just say, dude, your card's too wimpy. I'm not going to record because it just can't get enough throughput. And so there's class zero through class 10. Um, and, and it would seem that that corresponds to the mega bits per second throughput. Okay. So for example, they say here, class 10 is 10 megabits per second. So that's very slow. Now there's another rating, of course, just to complicate things, which is a X rating, but I also see here, I'm looking at a Wikipedia article. Wait, you're and, not talking and, about an X-rated flash card, are you? Well, you know, it could be. <laughs> but uh, apparently an X is equivalent to 1.2 megabits per second. So that's another way that some of these memory vendors can say, oh, well, I have a, you know, 40X. Uh, no, it, it has nothing to do with adult content. Okay. Um, but even then, these, I'm looking at the maximum rating here. So, so, so somebody, I guess, makes or, or there's a specification of 600X. Uh, class device and that that boils down to uh, from what they say in the chart here 720 megabits per second write speed yeah. um, or actually I'm sorry and, and actually they have an equivalent here which is about 90 megabytes per second write speed so uh, unless you get a really really speedy card I think you're just talking two different classes of memory I mean you get what you pay for I mean some of these cards are pretty inexpensive and while they certainly can meet the needs of a photographer uh, you know, or for short term, I mean, you know, some of these, you know, little thumb drives or flash drives, uh, I think that's what type of memory they're using. They're using the slower memory, not the, you know, SSD memory, which is not memory, but it's like, you know, it's the memory and the cache and the architecture and all of that stuff. So it, you can do it, but you'll, you'll, I think, see pretty quickly the, uh, the limitations of these things. Yep. Yep. All right. Uh, and, you know, I think it's time to invite the band in from the cold. <laughs> but they're hot, so it kind of works out, right? That's right. Smoking. Uh, you've heard a lot of comments in the show. You've heard a lot of questions answered. All of these people have found a way to get these questions to us, and we don't want to leave you out in the cold, so we're going to tell you how to get these answers and questions to us. Uh, the best way... Feedback at MacGeekGab.com. You can email anything there. Audio, video, text, pictures, whatever you want. That gets to both John and I. We can deal with uh, with, with managing it and, and answer your questions and get it into the show. I don't know. I, I, I can't agree with you, Dave. I, I, I'd much rather write to feedback at MacGeekGab.com. Well, no, you said you could send anything. And I, like, you couldn't send us a CF memory card. You could try. You could send, you could us, send us, us the contents. A yeah. picture of it, absolutely. So at feedback at MacGeekGab.com. But, That's right. you know, you can also call us, Dave. And if I had to pick up the phone and call us, I would dial 206-666-GEEK, which is 4335. You can, uh, that's right. Uh, I'm trying to think. What else? Skype. You could Skype to MacGeekGab. That'll get to us. Audio quality on that's not going to be as good uh, simply because of the way we have the call routed. Uh, it's not going to be as good as if you uh, call us directly or certainly emailing us at that feedback address. If you are a premium subscriber, which, if you're a professional in the computer industry, could be tax deductible for you. Really? you learn a lot. Hey, it's education, man. Uh, if you're a premium subscriber, you can email premium at macgeekgab.com. And uh, you can find us on Twitter. Uh, I am Dave Hamilton. John is John F. Braun. Pete is Pilot Pete. All the news about the show is Mac Geek Gab. And of course, Mac Observer is Mac Observer. 
Michael Johnston from the We Have Communicators podcast, formerly the iPhone Alley podcast, converts this to AAC for you. Uh, Cashfly, C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com provides all the bandwidth to get this show from us to you. The podcast marketplace includes the A2 desktop speakers from Audio Engine, BB Edit from Barebones Software, Disc Label from Smile, and Notebook from Circus Ponies, all through the Backbeat Media Podcast Network. And John, that's it. We are out of here for this one. Out of here. Premium show coming up Wednesday, assuming my schedule uh, stays predictable, which I'm sure I'm sure it won't stay predictable, but I'm confident Wednesday will work.